Welcome to the Living Out Podcast, helping people, churches and society talk about faith and sexuality. You are listening to the Living Out Podcast and we are really glad that you're here. I'm Andrew, I'm part of the team here at Living Out and today I'm joined by my friends Andy and Adam. Hello guys. Hello. Hello. Andrew. Adam, this is, I think, your second time on the podcast. We actually interviewed you way, way back in our first series, the Featured Author Series, where you were the second ever Living Out podcast. I don't know if you know this, but for a long time, and maybe still, it was the most listened to episode of the Living Out podcast. So I'm very excited about our listener ratings shooting up today (laughs) with this episode again. Pressure's on. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. indeed. I will be closely watching those figures. And uh, listeners may not know, but Adam is very, very tall. Every time I I meet Adam uh, in person I am um, kind of have forgotten quite how tall he is how tall are you Adam I'm six foot seven so an inch uh, taller than the average door frame oh that must be annoying oh no <laughs> I know I know that door frames are going to be an issue so it's constant ducking Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I confess, I, I also, when I remember how tall Adam is, I feel slightly jealous because one of my kind of childhood dreams was to be taller than my brother. And my brother, I think, is six foot three, which now feels not that tall. And I'm only a lowly six foot. Uh, so I never quite made it, which is sad. So that got me thinking, guys, do you have any unfulfilled childhood dreams? Well, I'm five foot 11, which is even worse. But um, <laughs> this is a, a, a weird one. So most of my uh, friends, contemporaries at school, wanted to play football for England. I wanted to commentate on England playing football. So oh. <laughs> I, I just wanted to be John Botson or no, Barry Davis for those of that generation or Des and presenting it. I wanted to be a sports commentator. And, um, well, I'm enjoying speaking to a microphone now, but sadly about, you know, sexuality <laughs> rather than football. Uh, Andy, I could actually see that. I could see that happening. I think you should start your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about football instead of being single and same-sex attracted. That'd be brilliant. What about you, Adam? Yes, when I was a kid, I uh, I wanted to be a shouting man. What? A shouting man? A shouting man. So, so think back, way back when, 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 when there was no internet, and so news was delivered by the shouting man. Oh, a town crier? Yeah, like a town crier. He would take his bell sandwich board, shouting away. Uh, and then it progressed from there um, <laughs> onto I wanted to be a butler. Oh! Yeah, yeah. I had real big dreams that I wanted to be a butler, and I would um, prepare myself to fulfil these dreams by um, serving my mum and dad's cereal in bed. Oh. <laughs> wow, I did not expect that answer. Well, next time we're all hanging out, we're very happy for you to act as the butler and uh, bring us especially not cereal, but some nice drinks <laughs> and food and such like. <laughs> that is that is brilliant. I, I, I love that. Uh, well, today we are actually here to continue our series discussing uh, a book, The Plausibility Problem, which was written by our ministry director, Ed Shaw. A brilliant book, really helpful. And so we thought it'd be good to take some time across the podcast series to discuss the themes of that book. And what Ed does in The Plausibility Problem is to discuss some of the missteps that Christians and churches often make which can create kind of difficulties for same-sex attracted Christians who are seeking to be celibate and single, or actually I think really for any Christian who's seeking to be celibate and single and to faithfully follow Jesus in that context. And today we're going to discuss chapter two, misstep two, which is a family is mum, dad and 2.4 children. Ed, 
opens this chapter by sharing how people have often felt sorry for him because he doesn't have children uh, or a partner. I wonder, guys, have you ever encountered that sort of attitude in your own life? I mean, I've probably had an experience of people feeling sorry for me. I, I don't know whether that's due to my lack of partner and children. But it's funny, actually, I, I've managed to cultivate a reputation for being useless around children, which I, I've worked quite hard on. But but certainly it's the case that people have kind of said, oh, I just feel slightly sorry for you, Andy, not having somebody to share your life with, somebody to go home to at the end of a long day. Um, you know, in, in one or two cases, people who would take a different view on sexuality to me sort of praying that I would meet somebody and have a loving gay relationship such that that would be that sort of loneliness would be removed so certainly I've had people feeling sorry for me that I've not had a partner yeah I definitely can relate to that I think sometimes sharing my story with people and and some people just get quite tearful or upset and it's because they think I can deny myself and family uh and yeah a partner and children and they're like well what's the point of life if you haven't got these things um i think some people are also like a little bit jealous <laughs> like oh i wish i wish i could actually have a good night's sleep for once <laughs> <laughs> yeah the grass is always greener kind of thing, isn't it? that is true <laughs> i think i've encountered this i've not encountered it so much in people's explicit statements but in the implicit things that are said uh the one that stands out to me is i just have a surprising number of conversations i feel like of people where they seem to be really supportive of the fact that I want to faithfully follow Jesus, the fact that I'm seeking to be seen instead of obedience to him and stuff, that that is what I feel is the right thing to do and that I'm relatively comfortable in that. And then like the last thing they'll say will be, oh, but where should we knew someone who same sex attracted? And they also got married to a woman in the end. It's always like it's kind of this little last parting thought is, but your life would be better if you do manage actually to marry a woman, which kind of seems to imply this thing of actually it's not such a great thing to be just you in, in that sense, kind of just on your own. Yeah, and we sometimes hear it in, in the language, don't we? When people talk about their better halves. It's like, okay, if that if that person's your better half, then you are just a half of a whole. <laughs> and is, is, are we saying that about every every single person, that they're just half a being? Yeah. I find it in the weird assumptions. So whenever I meet somebody for the first time, they don't know me very well, they can look at me and guess that I'm somewhere in my mid-40s. There's just the assumption. So if you, you're not here with your wife and kids, uh, at which point you say, uh, you know, I don't actually have a wife and kids, which, which just feels weird to, to some people. <laughs> Remember the worst conversation I had, somebody was shocked and said, oh, wow, have you never found anybody you liked? Or have you never found anybody who liked you? Which was just sort of, and it sort of just slightly played into the sort of, actually it just feels weird not to be part of wife, two and a half kids. And, and just that sense of, I don't quite fit into society as I should. That That's more been expressed. And it's mainly by people I'm meeting initially. Yeah. I'm not a fan of small talk, full stop. But the small talk question I dread is do you have a family or mm. tell me a family kind of thing? Because as an adult, people don't mean tell me about your parents and siblings and such like. They mean about your spouse and children. And then it's that decision. Yeah, exactly. You kind of say you don't have a spouse or children. And say, how much do you explain? Have you got the energy, the time? Is it the content? You know, kind of. And yeah, yeah, it's quite a really difficult question to to answer. What about? And some of this has touched on this already. Are there ways we see? churches maybe kind of communicate or imply the message that a family is a mum dad and 2.4 children as ed puts it in the book 
I mean, churches have slightly got better at this, but it was always the sort of family service uh, that you'd have, I don't know, once a month, once a term, where the kids stayed in. And it did give this sort of impression of single people, please go away. So I think most churches have now renamed that for that reason, but sometimes that, that hangs around. Yeah, a little bit of, yeah, what we need as a church is some new families to join us. Um, it's quite rare, actually, to, what we really need as a church is some loads of single people to join us, doesn't get said uh, very often. Uh, forgive me, this is going to sound slightly macabre, but it's partly just having been a pastor for, for years. I, I always, I'm always struck by that sort of thing happening when people die, actually. So when somebody dies, when there's a bereavement, it's, oh, we really must pray for their family. Actually, we don't really care about their close friends, actually. And, you know, their close friends might not get invited to the sort of end of the funeral service where the burial or something takes place. And it, it's just one of those moments where you think, oh, gosh, family is all that matters. Um, sorry for sort of taking us down a slightly sort of gloomy route, but it, it's actually one of those moments where you just see family is everything. Friendship is a bit less. It's actually when people die and who we pray for and who we care for at that moment. It's mm. a really good point, yeah. And we maybe see it as well in the, in the courses which we run. Uh, there's, there's marriage courses, there's marriage prep courses, but um, and actually, yeah, how many courses are there out there to, to help us in our friendships? Yeah, really good point. And so we can say in a sense then there's a potential problem. There's a very narrow definition of family, which leaves some of us kind of excluded from family. What about then, how does Jesus help us here? Jesus, it strikes me, presents us a very different understanding of family. What words of Jesus, what promises of Jesus do you feel are relevant here? I mean, the provocative point to make is that Jesus doesn't anywhere speak positively about nuclear family. So actually when Jesus talks about nuclear family, it tends to be as a potential rival to him. Actually, if anyone doesn't hate their father, mother, and follow me. So there's there's that point you'd make. And and then you just get Jesus redefining family. Um, So there's a moment in the Gospels where it's said to Jesus, you know, your mother and your brothers are outside. Uh, and Jesus comes back and says, no, here are my mothers and my brothers. And he points to his disciples. And so Jesus does redefine family to a certain extent uh, to say there's a, another family at play here. So his followers function as family uh, together. I always tend to, to mock uh, chapter 10. And I just think Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10 are just so um, powerful. And you've, he's having a conversation with, uh, with the disciple Peter. And uh, Peter's just commenting on how much he's given up <laughs> to, to follow Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ just comes back, which is incredibly like strong words that those who have yeah, given up wives and, and family and brothers and sisters and homes and fields, they're going to receive like a hundred times fold, a hundred, a hundred fold more. <laughs> However you say that phrase, hundred fold more um, in brothers and sisters and fields and families and homes. Uh, in this life and and in eternal life, and I just find that just so moving. And actually, Jesus recognises there is a cost uh, to following Him. There's a cost to discipleship, but that cost is met um, in in the local church and the family of the local church, and and above all, in eternity, in the joys of eternal life. And I love that we then see all this um, illustrated in the life of Jesus as well. He gives this teaching but also it's presented in his life. He's a single man. He doesn't have a spouse. He doesn't have his own children, but actually he 
just has these deep connections with lots of people and just kind of Jesus's relational connection and friendship connection with so many people throughout the gospel is one of the really really striking things and the way he welcomes people in he he forms a family in a sense through the the men and women he gathers around him and and when i think about that question you know i still find that question awkward of well, tell me about your family i kind of take great comfort in jesus would have had the same awkward small track <laughs> conversation actually jesus would have been yeah. the same thing maybe even more so you know for to to be by choice, an adult single man in that Jewish context of his day would have been even more unusual than for me to be an adult single man in a Christian context today. And so, yeah, it's one of those lovely things when I have that awkward conversation and the slight sting of that question, actually, Jesus really understands that because he's been there, he's done that, he's experienced exactly that. One of the most beautiful scenes for me is at the cross where you've got Jesus dying on the cross, and you've got Mary there, and uh, the disciple Jesus loves probably John there uh, and jesus uh says you know mother here is your son you know disciple here is your mother uh, and it took me ages to realize what was going on there it was going oh jesus you know looking after his mom which it, it, that is happening but there's something bigger going on i think jesus is saying actually there's a new family being created by my death on the cross whereby sort of mothers and sons are created who aren't blood relations but in this new family where all the barriers have come down through his death a new family of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters is is created who all look after each other because actually John then takes Mary into his home. You know, a new family where people are looking after each other through Jesus' death on the cross, and it's beautiful. Amen, because that's often one of the underappreciated like glories of what the gospel has achieved. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's a writer called Bethany Jenkins. She has an incredible little phrase about Jesus, that Jesus is a biologically childless parent. But actually, at the cross, through the gospel, he creates thousands and millions and billions of children. <laughs> and he, he draws us all into this incredible yeah, family of God. Yeah. Andy, you said a few moments ago, I think your words were, Jesus has nothing positive to say about the nuclear family. Does that mean then that Jesus is very negative about the nuclear family? No, I mean, he's, he's negative about idolising the, the nuclear family. Mm. But as you look into the, the New Testament as a whole... The nuclear family isn't eradicated, so yeah, there are instructions as to how husbands and wives are to relate, how parents and children uh, are to relate. I think one of the things we sometimes forget is is one Timothy five, where there's yeah. a, a command to Christians to make sure they're looking after their parents and their grandparents, especially as they head into old age. And I've I've seen that done wonderfully by some folk in the church here, just being really sacrificial towards your parents with Alzheimer's and so on. And so, yeah, you, you don't want to give the impression that what we're saying means we have no family responsibilities to our nuclear family at all. The phrase I often use is to be a Christian is to be part of two families, if you like. And they're not to compete with one another. They're just the the, the responsibilities the Lord gives us. We we care for, for people within both our families. That's a really important nuance to hold on to, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess the big question now is how do we live this out practically? Here's Jesus' vision for family. What does it look like when rubber hits the road in practicality? And that's what we'll explore in the second half of today's episode. Just to let you know that the Living Out team is coming to Dublin on Saturday the 25th of March. 
This is your chance to explore sexuality in our culture, the biblical picture, and how we can support same-sex attracted Christians in our churches. Find out more and book a place at livingout.org slash events. Jesus gives us a very different understanding of family and the question then becomes how do we put that into practice and I found really helpful here to recognize the distinction between being family and living as family so the Bible teaches that we as New Testament church are family we're adopted as God's children that means we are siblings together we are family but it's just a recognizable fact of life that living as family is a very different thing just to being family by the way things work. Everyone is born with biological family. Sadly, not everyone gets to experience family life with their biological family. So we've established that we are family. Uh, how? What then does it look like for us to live out? What might living as church family look like in practice? And what's it look like in your life and your own experience? When I first moved down to South East London, I didn't know anyone in this part of, uh, part of the world. And, um, and before I even arrived, uh, my boss, he, he called me up and he said, we'd just love to have, if you come around for dinner on a Thursday evening, and we'd love that to be like a weekly thing if, uh, if you're up for it. And like my heart just like leaped. <laughs> <laughs> and then little did I know that like that Thursday night dinner was going to become uh, the world of lockdown two and three. And that, and that Thursday night dinner was also going to become like the only people I can see Tuesday night dinner all of Sunday. And yet like, it created... Um, like just really deep and, and meaningful relationships, people just picking up the phone being like, let's make it a regular thing to regularly see each other. Yeah, it's good. Regularity just is such a key thing, I think, isn't it? fostering deep relationships and experience of family. And one of the things I think is hard to do in for many of us in a modern culture where lives are busy and full and fast-paced and actually being deliberate and proactive about having regularity or regular time with people um, yeah, likewise for me, it's been a really, really vital thing. Yeah, that's that's right. And part of it is just how we communicate with each other. So uh, yeah, I'm probably at a stage now where closest friends are spread all over the, the country. Um, but but it's funny enough, it's just some of the language that, that people use. So with those close friends I visit every so often, you know, they're all constantly saying to me, Andy, when can you come again? It's sort of, you know, and, and actually then proactively asking that sort of question, which gives gives me the reassurance they do actually want to see me again. Uh, and just actually thinking through the language, um, perhaps, you know, those who have nuclear families wanting to include others in them, just the language, the tone we set to actually deliberately say to people, you know, you're not interfering with our family life. We want you uh, here. I remember a number of years ago now, I, I have a tendency to view myself as as quite a burden to people and, and mystified whenever anybody wants to spend time with me. But I, I remember one, uh, it was a wife actually, so good friend of mine. It was actually his wife who I knew less well. But she said to me, Andy, you keep giving the impression that you coming to see us is a burden we, you do realize we want you here um and just using that sort of language was i just found really helpful actually a key part for me of experiencing church's family has just been recognizing that most of family life everything in nuclear family life is not kind of the exceptional and the special it's the very normal the very mundane in a sense but it's done together and so 
for me, what actually I find is kind of the richest experience of them I get to experience actually is when I just do the very normal mundane things with other people, which also becomes a lot easier because it's not that anyone has to go out of their way and put in lots of effort and make it a really special occasion or a special food or a special event or whatever it is. It's actually just kind of hanging along with what is ever, whatever is happening. And so actually, you know, helping a mate renovate his garden or um, just literally going and doing the shopping together or just going out for a walk because the family go for a walk or something is, for me, actually often much more meaningful and more kind of relationally satisfying than let's get together and have a really special meal to mark this special occasion or whatever. And it also just makes it so much easier, I think, because all of us have things we're doing which we could do with others alongside us. Um, and so that makes it feel much more manageable, actually, to begin to experience this yeah it's about consciously deciding to choose people mm. and actually the problem with special events is it just puts loads of pressure on them <laughs> yeah there's loads of pressure there oh we're gonna have a fun time where actually it's much easier to have a fun time in, in doing something normal and, and mundane i remember very very struck a few years back by rosaria butterfield but the gospel comes of a house key and mm. it, she really pushes this idea that actually the gospel should transform our relationships to such an extent that the, the guest becomes a host and the host becomes a guest that we, we shouldn't just be putting out the best best china and um and kicking the best meals uh for people but actually we should just welcome people into the normality of normality of life and also then when i am a guest in someone's home i shouldn't be expecting them just to serve me like a butler andrew <laughs> <laughs> But I should be. I should. I should actually be intentionally trying to find ways to serve them. Like a butler. Yeah, that is really good. Yeah. There, there you go. Actually, you could go round to friends' houses, Adam, and, and take on the butler role. And both family is created, and your lifetime ambition is fulfilled. Everybody's a winner here. What a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, though. I love the thing of kind of, um, how do you just put it, guests becoming hosts. I, I wrote a blog, it's on, on the website called The Dishwasher Test, which is this, this, this it's a jokey thing, but there's a serious point behind it, which is if I'm at someone's house, if actually, you know, you try to start stacking the dishwasher after dinner or whatever, and they're like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're a guest, we'll do that, you don't do that, you go sit down and relax. That's lovely, but I'm there being treated as a guest, it's kind of they're entertaining me, that's not hospitality. And actually, I probably feel most at home and most experienced family when I just get to chipping on everyone else and I'm stacking the dishwasher no one thinks it's weird because why wouldn't I because this is family this is family life together and so actually yeah playing our part when we are in the houses of others and often as singles we might be the ones going to others particularly there's children and stuff which is more practical but actually we still get to play our part and um, yeah make it that experience of family together not of being entertained as a as a special guest. I guess one element of living as church family that might be particularly valuable and precious to some of us as singles is the chance to be involved in the lives of children. I wonder if you guys, how have you seen that work well or experienced that in your lives? I mean, a, a little bit, actually, particularly once those children have got older and sort of teenagers, I, I think there's there is huge benefit for teenagers growing up in church to have a range of adults whose brains they can pick and who they can talk to and there's just really mutual benefit there so it's good for single people to have spiritual children who we can love and care for and pour our lives into and vice versa it's good for for christian families to have other adults in their life that the the children can learn to because apparently their parents won't be perfect in every way i think i really valued those friends of mine who have intentionally sort of asked me to be involved in their children's lives Mm. 
Um, and as an Anglican, it's very, it's part of the, this is the way we do that in, in um, baptism and being God parents. But actually, it, it doesn't just have to be sending them a present uh, on their birthday. Um, there's, that, that, there's that deeper sense that she's, she's regularly praying for them. But then it's also finding out what they need prayer for. And, and if it's if it's right to actually have a physical sort of part of that, of that you know, physical is the wrong word. Um, if it's possible to actually be a part of their lives and to, 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 to take them on trips and to get to know them as actual individuals. So that, yeah, as Andy has already stated, so that when they're older and they've got big questions about life, you've already got a relationship uh, with them. So you can actually talk to them about about life and about faith uh, and about Jesus. So yeah, I really value those intentional uh, opportunities which friends have made. And I found the flip side, it's really important for singles and others to be intentional as well. So I'm really deliberate about when I'm with my friends, the children of my friends as well as their parents. The children aren't there as a annoying distraction in the background. Actually, I want them to know they're loved and valued by me. I want to be deliberate about taking an interest in their life, you know, playing the games I want to play, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, and then sensing actually, oh, this isn't mummy and daddy's friends come around. Actually, this is Andrew, who's part of the family, who really loves and cares for us as well. So that means, you know, getting down on the floor and playing the game. It means countless games of hide and seek. Like, Why not let's play a board game? No, hide and seek again. Okay, we'll play hide and seek again. <laughs> and by doing that, I'm showing them, yeah, I love you and I value you as an individual. And yeah, for me, just I, I sometimes reflect on my life and think actually in some ways I get to have this kind of broader, richer experience of family than many of my married friends who have kids who has my understandable practical limitations and actually get to be involved in the lives of so many families and so many children. And that's just one of the great joys actually of singleness for me. One thing I wanted to talk about was some housing arrangements, because I think we live in a culture which offers very few options for housing arrangements. Generally speaking, single people over a certain age would live on their own and nuclear families would live together. But I think one of the ways we can enjoy being church families is to expand the options of housing arrangements. And I wondered, do you have any um, insights on that from your own experience or just from observing other people's housing arrangements that have worked well and can foster a sense of church as family? There's a, there's two elderly ladies at my church who um, around 40 years ago, uh, both yeah, both were single, and so they decided they'd buy a house together, and uh, and and very intentionally so sort of just share life together. And now they're I want to say in their 80s, <laughs> in their 80s, and 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 they've been just each other's support and encouragement, and it's mm. it's beautiful to see how yeah they're both single ladies and yet they both flourished in life because. Of I'm very lucky. So I live um, basically on an annex, which is on the back of the house of a couple in my church. They're kind of um, uh, around retirement age, they're mid 60s. And we kind of share a kitchen together, have some meals together and stuff. And it's just a really lovely thing for me, actually, of some of my own space, but also some experience of family and community. And people do find it really odd. People think it really odd. We've had comments in the church of, but Andrew's family, but his parents live nearby. Why doesn't he live with them? Uh, and people just assuming, obviously, that I'm their son and such like. But actually, for me, it's just a really life-giving experience of a bit of kind of community um, living. And uh, even though, yeah, people find it hard to kind of compute, it's been a really good thing. When I was a little bit younger, I kind of lived with a family. And again, I found that's a really uh, enjoyable form of uh, housing arrangement and helped me to experience a sense of family, helped me to develop deep connection. And just reminding me, the single, uh, I don't have to be isolated. I don't have to mind if I don't want to. There are different kind of options available to me. 
I mean, I, I've seen it happen. I've seen it work well. I've actually seen it work really badly. Um, and I, yeah. I think I think part of me wants to to say it, it works well in a sense where there are just good conversations happening about how this is this is working. Mm-hmm. Um, where perhaps if you have family and you have single people living together, they sort of they do talk to each other about what their different expectations are, about what time they do need on their own, and and, and so on. So so. So I, I think it is definitely something that we should um, we should look at. Um, I, I probably want to add in the sort of rider that you do have to work at it. I don't want us to give the impression that it will automatically be brilliant. Uh, you will need to do the sort of work of exploring how do we do this, how do we function together, what space do you need, what space do you need. But I think given that, uh, I mean, actually, just as a nuclear family living together has to make it work, so actually, in this situation, you've got to have the conversations to make it work. But it should be an option because we shouldn't insist that single people have to live on their own. Yeah, that's really good wisdom. And actually, that applies more broadly as well, doesn't actually? The more we seek to be family of people, share life with people, the more you get the tensions you get in family. And actually, Absolutely. talking, good communication, honesty and stuff is really key in that. I think the sin of singleness, easiest sin of singleness maybe, is selfishness. That you, if you just live by yourself, um, as I have at different points in life, uh, you can just control everything you do around you all the time so that everything always serves you and is easy and comfortable. But actually, it's also really good to bump heads against someone else <laughs> on a regular basis, even when you're tired at the end of a long day and just and have to serve them. And that act of you serving them, them serving you, making mistakes, being forgiven, having a laugh, all those things. Is just the act. That's that's real community, um, and it's just so life giving. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? So true. What about what advice would we give to um, a same sex attracted person, or just a single person who's struggling to find the experience of family in church? Take the initiative. So, I think one of the challenges on this can be single people feeling slightly fed up with church family experience not being as good as they want to basically saying hey come on love me um and often we do need to be those who take the initiative um yeah i think probably my well it's actually a mixture so my some of my experience of of feeling in close family connections are are where i took the initiative where there was somebody i wanted to get alongside and encourage or a, a family i wanted to encourage um and so would suggest meeting up actually one of the the joys of having cultivated a a reputation for being unable to cook is whenever i suggested meeting up they immediately invited me around uh but (laughs) um but sometimes it is just taking the initiative actually and saying rather than wait we need to be the ones who get things going yeah i like to approach it as actually if I want people to be a family for me, I need to be a family for them. Absolutely. And actually, rather than sitting around and waiting and thinking, where are you going to be a family for me? It's thinking, how can I be proactive in being a family for you? Um, yeah. And actually, as we you know, seek to, to love people, as Jesus has called us to love them through self-sacrificial ways, actually, friendships are deepened and experience of family begins to grow. And we've got to stick around. The reality is that adult relationships take take time to build and to grow and for trust to, to develop. And if we're moving around all the time, or jumping from church to church all the time, we're never going to build those those deep relationships. Yeah, and 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 yeah, we've just got to stick around. That that's yeah. probably worth saying to folk in their twenties, actually. So those who've gone away to university, for instance, you you create relationships and family really quickly, 
at university, you don't quite in normal life. <laughs> uh, and so part of me wants to think, because I think it's often those in their early 20s or mid-20s who are most, ah, oh, this feels a bit rubbish. Um, work at it. Enjoy enjoy getting to know sort of spiritual parents, a generation above you. Don't just think all your relationships have to be with contemporaries because that's quite a weird family. Uh, so deliberately generation above, generation below, try to cultivate relationships across generations because that will give you the, the deepest experience of family. And what would we say to church leaders? How can they encourage this sort of living out of church family within their church communities? By doing it. <laughs> um, I think would probably be the easiest, easiest way um, by actually modelling these, modelling these things. And I think sometimes we can be quite task orientated, I say, as a church leader. Uh, and we, we create our to-do lists and actually um, relationships take time, they take effort. They're not something you can ever tick off. Um, and yet they're totally worth it. And so, yeah, it's about, it's about doing it and, and realising that there is value in these long-term goals. Just thinking church is family rather, th- rather than thinking church is institution. Um, often the way we end up, church leaders end up leading stuff, and believe me, I've done it, it is around meetings, around programs, uh, around following the constitution. Yeah, all of those sort of things you kind of have to do as a, a church leader and as you make decisions. But the danger is you end up seeing church as institution. So how do you convey a sense of warmth around family, around people, Um Warmth goes a long way, actually, hmm. um, in just modelling this is who we are uh, as a, a church community, as a church family. That's excellent, yeah. We are approaching the end of our time. So, guys, are there any resources you would point people to if they want to think about this more and uh, engage with the idea of living out church as family? The Seven Myths About Singleness um, by Sam Albury. And I just think he just, yeah, he he directly looks at this um, at this myth. It's very helpful. Uh, at the risk of being nice to you, Andrew, probably of all of us, you, you've just done a load of really good thinking and writing on this. So there are just umpteen blogs that you've written uh, on this subject, like the, the dishwasher test and singles needing uh, families too. Absolutely. And we can stick those in the show notes as well. So we'll pick a few highlights there. Alongside that, we'll put an article I wrote called What Does Jesus Teach About the Nuclear Family? Unpacking some of what we've said already about the different bits in the Gospels that engage there. And a blog I recommend, I really liked, written by one of our friends who seems as attracted and is in an opposite sex marriage. Uh, it's called Why I Need My Single Friends. And just pointing out that this thing of being church as family isn't only good for single people, but it's also really good for married people and for children as well. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. But I want to leave us with the challenge that Ed lays down at the end of this chapter, which I really loved, which is where he points out we can all take initiative in helping everyone to experience family. And actually, the way that church becomes family, how we experience it is by us all taking that initiative. And he kind of lays down the final challenge of what can you do today to help that become a reality for people in your church community? And what a great challenge for us to go away with. What does it mean for us today to put this into practice and help people to experience family? 
Thanks so much to Andy and Adam for joining me and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode as we work through the rest of the plausibility problem over the coming weeks. And why not share this podcast with other people who you think might be blessed by it. We'll be back in a couple of weeks time looking at the next chapter of the plausibility problem.